0: Good morning. Hear the word of God from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler and who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called Magi secretly and found out from them where the exact time the star had appeared. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in the dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning again. So good to be with you all this morning hope that you all had a, a great Christmas my name is Eric Weiner I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint and this week as, uh, as I was preparing for the sermon I, I honestly th- this is a, an off week for us we didn't we don't we're not in the midst of a, of a sermon series uh, we're actually in the new year going to start in in the books of Joshua and judges together we're going to do a 12 week series uh, beginning next week but this week this week was open and so I, I I remember asking my wife what what should I do you know it could go anywhere the options are endless right Uh, and she said don't don't be so quick to to move away from Christmas and so I thought let's just let's keep focusing on this child let's remember let's let's look let's look a little more deeply at this child earlier this week I was reading an old article by uh, Malcolm Gladwell on how he rediscovered his faith Gladwell, if, if you don't know him, he's a Canadian journalist, author, and podcaster. Uh, he's, he's written for The New Yorker, and he's published many New York Times bestsellers. And I, I, really, I really enjoyed his creative writing style. I find him to be a, a very interesting and thoughtful uh, thinker and, and writer. And in, in this article, he, he retells some of the research he did for a book he wrote called David and Goliath. And in the book, he tells a story of a group of French Huguenots who turned their little commune into a haven for Jewish refugees during the heights of Nazi oppression during World War II. Gladwell writes that when the first refugee appeared at their door in the winter of 1941, Magda Trochma, the wife of the pastor of the community, said it never occurred to her that it would be dangerous. Nobody thought of that. And so they defy the powers that be, at first with willful hospitality, and then with outright rejection to Nazi command. Now, while this is an incredible story of defiance by way of Christian conviction, truly it's too neat and too simple for such a messy world, such a messy circumstances. We like these these quasi-easy answers to difficult questions. We like putting nice little bows on stories like these. I mean, it sounds prepackaged. It's ready-made for the, the movie theaters, right? We even do this with the Christmas story. We sanitize it. We make it neat and simple and clean. When it's not. So Gladwell complicates things for us when he writes, the Huguenots of Le Chambon were not the only committed Christians in France in 1941. There were millions of believers in France in those years. So what do we do with that? Why didn't more people do the same? Should they have? And of those who did... The average person hears a story like this and they label them heroes. The, the, the community of Leish and Bone are heroes. But I think Gladwell gets at something closer to the truth, something entirely underrated when he says they were simply people whose experience had taught them where true power lies. They were simply people whose experiences had taught them where true power lies with God that was his conclusion that's what Gladwell says and Gladwell even admits this about himself he says I have always been someone attracted to the quantifiable and the physical I hate to admit it but I don't think I would have been able to do what the Huguenots did at Les Chambon I would have counted the soldiers on each side and concluded it's too dangerous it's too dangerous the truck didn't even consider the danger But for Gladwell, it's the first thing he would have thought of. Is that not the sound of the rational mind at work? Is that not appealing to reason? We look at what's available to us as we see it. We judge according to our perspective and we act. Is that not all we have? Or do we just need to have the right principles and values Maybe it's like Gladwell didn't have their shared values. That's that's why he would have done something different. And yet others did. Other people had their values and they didn't do the same thing. And even then, according to who? What shapes and determines for us what is right and good and true? And now, now we are getting at something that is deeply embedded in every human heart. A desire to know and fulfill our calling. A desire to be who we were meant to be. To act in a way that is worthy of our lives. To do something. To be someone that will last. This is the kind of stuff that gets us out of bed in the morning. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. He says, God has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has put a longing in your heart to know him. What we find in our text this morning is that people will search to know what is true. They will search for God and they can start in all kinds of places from all regions of the earth. God has put in the hearts of people elements that lead to a seeking after and longing for what God knows will ultimately draw people to Himself. That's the destination. That's where we're going. That's what we're searching for. And in our day, just as in those before us, people are hungry to know what is true. God has placed a longing in the human soul to experience and enjoy eternal things. You don't have to be religious to have this longing. Is deeply wired in each of you so as we approach this text I have three questions for us to consider but really it's just one question it's just one question that's being asked toward three different groups because it's a question I think every human heart is asking and so we want to consider it in our in our passages this morning we want to consider it for us first what are the Gentiles looking for what are the Gentiles looking for in this passage second what are the Jews looking for And then third, we need to hold a mirror up to ourselves and ask ourselves, what are we looking for? Where is the wise person, the Apostle Paul asks. Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. First, what are the Gentiles looking for? What are the Gentiles looking for? Now by Gentiles, I'm referring here to the Magi. And surprisingly, they are looking for the king of the Jews. They're not entirely sure where to find him, but their purpose is clear. They intend to find him because they intend to worship him. So we see in Matthew 2, this caravan of studied, wealthy, well-respected, long-traveled astrologers from the east enter jerusalem asking around the city hey where can i find the one who has been born king i'd like to see about that and this is an interesting development matthew mark luke and john all of the gospel writers all had audiences in mind as they wrote the gospels matthew is the most intentionally jewish of the books Because he wrote to a predominantly Jewish audience. This is who he's trying to communicate the message of Jesus to. Who are the first people to worship Jesus in Matthew's gospel? The magi, the astrologers, the philosophers of the day, from the East, from the nations. God has shown a light that radiates out to the nations. And they have looked upon it and come searching. They have come wanting. It's just as the prophet Isaiah said, "See, darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn." For a predominantly Jewish audience, Magi would have been viewed as religiously intolerable. These are not the prize theologians of the day I mean, just consider this, this fairly well known story from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar experiences a season of sleeplessness because of these recurring dreams, these recurring dreams that he's having. He can't sleep. Nebuchadnezzar knows that these dreams mean something. These aren't just dreams, these are important messages that he needs to understand. And so what does he do? He seeks the wisdom of his day. He seeks the sages of his day. Those who are the the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers. However, Nebuchadnezzar's quest for understanding is stopped short. Because what he wanted to know and in the way that he wanted to know could only be made known by God. It's obvious in the text. And so the wise men that come to him, they complain they say what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Perhaps the magi of, of Matthew 2 changed their minds on that position that God can live among the humans. So Daniel's insight here is instructive. He says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery. He is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. In other words, Daniel is saying, you, you Nebuchadnezzar, you are right to value wisdom. But you must understand that human wisdom has its limits. There are things that cannot be known apart from God. Would you like to hear more? And now God has made himself known more directly through his son. His name is Jesus. So when the Magi come asking to find the king of the Jews, they are genuinely seeking. These are the scholars of the day. They are genuinely asking. They don't know, but they are looking. And notice, notice how they come to understand. Notice how they come to find out where Jesus is. Why do they go to Bethlehem? That's not their first intuition. That's not where the star was leading them. They go to Jerusalem. That makes sense. That's the city center. You go to the capital. That's where you expect to find the king. But that's not where they end up. They end up in Bethlehem. Why? It's not by way of the star. It's not through astrology or human intellect. It's by way of the word. In the text it says that King Herod had to gather together the chief priests and the teachers of the law to ask them, Hey, where's where's the king of the Jews going to be born? And they tell him, Bethlehem, of course. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so in verses 7 and 8, it says that Herod secretly gathers the Magi and sends them off to Bethlehem. That's how they know, it's through submitting to the word. So, what are the Gentiles looking for? They're looking for something that goes beyond human wisdom. And it leads them to bow down to this child, born king of the Jews. Second, what are the Jews looking for? The Apostle Paul says that the Gentiles look for wisdom, but the Jews demand signs. And a sign has been given. A child has born king, and yet they don't worship him. Why does the searching of the Magi not even, not even pique Israel's interest? Why does it not even pique their interest? Why don't they go looking? Before I was a pastor, I worked at a local restaurant. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Chick-fil-A. And there was one afternoon, I was, I was leading the, the two to five swing shift at the store. And the two to five swing shift is, is not a fun shift to lead because it's, it's just chaotic. I mean, you're, it's, it's right after lunch. Lunch, at, if you've ever been to Chick-fil-A at lunchtime, it's busy, okay? It's busy. But right after lunch, there's still it's still busy you think maybe I'll come at two no it's still busy you're not going to get a quick line and so it's right after lunch you're still busy and some some people's shifts are ending so you're losing help you're going you're going to have less people and then some people the the nerve they want to go on break so they need to go on break you have even less people and you yourself you've been working six or seven hours and you still have another three or four to go and you're trying to set the people up on the night shift. You're trying to make sure that they're ready to go. And there's, there's just a lot to do. It's a lot of bringing chaos back into order. That's what it feels like. And so on this particular swing shift, I'd already moved people around to their new positions. I would gotten breaks started. And I just had to walk back. I had to, to take some of the cashier drawers to the back office. I wanted to, you, don't, you don't leave money just laying around for everybody to see so they need to be counted people are getting off so I I was just dropping off the drawers I was just dropping them off in the office going to lock it come right back up I was coming right back up so I come right back up and as soon as I get to the front of the store it's as if time had stopped people in the drive-thru were just staring out the drive-thru I look at the team members on the front counter And they're staring out the windows to the right of the store. I look at the people who are standing in line who would typically be ordering. And they're looking out to the left of the store. And so what do you do? But come around the counter and try to fix yourself in the gaze of the people to see what they're looking at. And what I see out the windows of our store is a man running (laughs) And police chasing after him. There's a foot chase running out the door. Everybody is glued outside watching this happen. What do you do? What do I do? I'm running the store. So I come back to our team and I say, hey, let's get back to work. We have a job to do here. They're doing their job. We're doing ours. Our job is to keep things moving. That, I know that looks interesting. Interesting. But well, that doesn't concern you. Let's worry about what does concern us. Let's focus. Let's keep going. The Magi come into Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. Matthew 2, 3 says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Disturbed. The whole city is stirring. Why not, why not be excited I mean, foreigners have come looking for a king that Jewish people have been waiting centuries for. And you have these people who've come in, they're gazing as intently at what's going on in Israel as those people staring out that window at Chick-fil-A that day. Just fixed on it. Don't you at least want to go around the corner and take a look for yourself to see what's going on? I mean, these travelers must have come hundreds of miles. We're not talking about in cars. We're talking about on camels. They've come hundreds of miles to see what's going on in Israel. And yet you can't even make the, the six-mile walk over to Bethlehem. I mean, if, if they're wrong, well, then you made a six-mile walk and you've got to come back. But if they're right, your world just changed. The whole world just changed. Did you know that there are three groups of people who refer to Jesus as king in Matthew's gospel? The Magi to worship him, Pontius Pilate, who needs a reason to execute him, and the Roman soldiers who mock him. Above the cross of Christ were the words, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. So, why not God's people? Why don't they look to him as king? There are at least three barriers I see here in the text. The first barrier to seeing Jesus as king is a heart of hostility. A heart of hostility. You, You want to take a look at the state of God's people at the coming of Jesus? Look no further than Herod. At the time, Herod is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. But his way to the throne was by warfare and politics, not by birth. Herod wasn't even Jewish. He wasn't even born Jewish. He was was named king of Judea by the Roman Senate about 40 years prior to the birth of Christ. Though Herod wanted to endear himself to the Jewish people, he wanted the people to like him. They never embraced him as a true Jew. They saw him as a usurper. He's a usurper. Through his family, though his family had converted to Judaism, he never took the Jewish faith seriously. And this is, this is obvious by the fact that when, he, when, when these foreigners come, when these, king, these magi come looking for the king of the Jews, he, he, he gathers all of the, the religious teachers of the day together and he says, hey, hey, where, where can we find the king of the Jews? Where's he going to be born? I mean, my four-year-old can tell you that answer. He has not. He has not studied this. He has not acquainted himself with the truth about who God is and what He is doing. So for him, the news of one born king of the Jews was a threat to his rule, not a joy to his heart. So the first period is a heart of hostility, a heart of hostility formed. That can happen here. That can happen in any one of us. The second. The second barrier to seeing Jesus as king is status and stability. Verse three says that not only Herod was disturbed, but so was all Jerusalem with him. By all accounts, the birth of Jesus sounded like a legitimate claim of the coming Messiah. Israel had not forgotten the promise that God would bring a king from the line of David who would reign forever. But they had not had a Davidic king since Zedekiah whose name meant the Lord is righteous, but who is anything but a picture of God's righteousness. So maybe the idea of a Messiah for them had just grown stale. Maybe it was just too unreal. Would God even do this? And if if he did, would we even want it? What if what we have right now is is as good as it gets? Do we really want to do we really want to jeopardize that? The promise of a deliverer was maybe to them more of an unnecessary disruption to the stability they enjoyed. A king like Herod would never be enough, but at least he built us this extravagant temple. Does he know and observe Jewish customs like he want? No. But the people enjoyed economic stability and military peace under his rule. That's what we want, right? That's as good as it gets. So they were willing to accommodate the status quo for the trade-off of comfort and some facade of political power. Second barrier, status and stability. The third barrier to seeing Jesus as king is indifference. Verse four says that Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. And he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him. They told him Bethlehem, as the prophet Micah foretold. You see, the religious leaders, they have the right theology. They know the right answers. And yet they are nowhere to be found at the birth of the Messiah. All their religious training. Just imagine the credentials that filled that room. And yet not a single one makes the six-mile trek. Not a single one filled with curiosity or awe toward the mysteries of God being revealed. While they are close in proximity to the birth of the King, their hearts are far from Him. And we are just as prone to be such people, for if we think that we can have all the right answers while our hearts stay cold toward God, we have become indifferent. And indifference toward glorious things is always a terrible thing. While these leaders didn't want to execute Jesus like Herod did, indifference doesn't always have to be static. You won't necessarily stay there. In fact, what you see unfold in Matthew's gospel is a generation later how religious indifference actually moves toward hostility of the heart. A kind of rejection that ultimately leads to Jesus' crucifixion. And yet God uses even their rejection to show the power of his salvation. So scholar N.T. Wright wisely nudges us. He says, listen to the whole story. Matthew is saying, he says, think about what it meant for Jesus to be the true king of the Jews. And then come to him by whatever route you can. So that's considering what the Jews were looking at and why, why they didn't come to him. But but third, we need to ask, what are we, what are we looking for? What is it that our hearts are searching after? What is it that will satisfy our longings? By now, I hope you would know. And if you don't know, I hope that you will find what you're looking for. His name is Jesus. He's not a construct or an idea. He's a person. He's on the throne and he has called you to come and see the splendor of his kingdom so that you might live as his people bringing peace and justice to others. But it comes at a cost. Our very lives. You have to decide for yourself if that's a price worth paying. And this is hard for us because to do so requires that you cast aside our world's conventional wisdom and submit to Jesus. You see, the message of Jesus is so counter to how we think things should work. Jen Wilkin puts this so well when she says, worldly wisdom self-promotes. Now that that makes sense to us. Worldly wisdom self-promotes. Godly wisdom elevates others. Hmm. worldly wisdom seeks the highest place is that not what we all do is that not what we're doing with our lives godly wisdom seeks the lowest place how can I be sure of that look at the cross look at the birth worldly wisdom trusts in earthly possessions isn't that what the seeking the highest place is trying to accomplish for us Godly wisdom trusts in treasures in heaven. It looks for things eternal. It hopes in things eternal. It trusts in the promises of God. Again, Paul says Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential. But God chose the lowly things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. This is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus is the whole package of our salvation. So hear this. Our faith, your faith, does not depend on philosophical arguments or brilliant rhetoric. Neither does it stand on signs and wonders, though we'd sure love another one, right? No, our faith depends on the person of Jesus and his ability to save sinners. He is our righteousness and he invites us to humble ourselves and to know him. I realize that this message sounds like folly to some and it looks like hypocrisy to others, but it's what we have. Because he is who we have. Rather, he has us. And in 2022, we cannot ignore him. I pray that in the new year, our response to Jesus will be the same as the Magi's. For when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down and worshiped him. Which means that you actually come to him. It means that you actually have to make the trip. The start of New Year's always seem, to me, ripe with potential. But do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder if we're actually making progress? I guess it depends on the, the questions that you ask to evaluate, right? I mean, are we more technologically advanced than before? Do we have a better grasp on the field of medicine and the sciences? Has our world in a global sense become smaller? Yeah. Yeah. But are we less sinful than a generation ago? Are we more in love with God than a generation ago? Do we have a better grip on what God is doing in our midst than a generation ago? If we know who we are seeking and if we come to him and if we bow before him, then 2020 will be different. And I'm excited for that. I hope that you're excited for that. Will you look to the, to the cross? Will you see the wisdom of the cross? But first, will you remember the birth of this child and then trust God at work in our midst this very day? Because church, I tell you this day, that child, that child is king. He is our king, and he reigns forever. So come, won't you? Come and worship him. Set your hearts, set your hearts gaze on him. Would you see Jesus? Would you see him? Would you come and see him? And then follow him. I know it sounds strange to trust a child, but will you trust this child? Listen to him. He is the savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you you have given us a beautiful, a powerful, a mighty word. Your, Your son has done a mighty thing. God, we preach and we will continue to preach Christ crucified. Because we know that it is salvation. It means our salvation. God, we know that as, if, as we look to this child born, King of the Jews, God, if you have done this, if you have come, if you have come in human flesh, then what will you not do for us? What is too great for you to accomplish? So God, I pray that we would come God, as, as I know many, many in this room are, we are the, the, the wise, the smart, the scholars, the educated, the well-informed of our day. It's our tendency. We, we could so easily act in pride and in self-sufficiency, but God, I pray that we, we would kneel before you, our king, and act in God-dependency. God, may we trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.